The title of this message is called The Crushing. The Crushing. What is the crushing? The crushing is the process of God in our lives. The crushing is the process of our lives. But we do not like process. We do not like crushing. Crushing is uncomfortable. Crushing is intense. Crushing can be painful, excruciating. And yet at the same time, crushing is beautiful. Because the process of God to produce olive oil does not happen without crushing. The olive only has a certain amount of usage or capability if it stays as an olive. But if the olive is crushed and the olive produces oil through the process of crushing, there are more usages. What do we use olive oil for? Cooking, medicinal purposes, diffusing things. You guys probably know better than I do. Light, burning a lamp, amen. Anointing. And oil is also prophetic in the Bible for anointing. What else do we not have without crushing? We don't have wine. Now, I don't drink. I choose not to drink. The leadership team at this church does not drink. We abstain from alcohol. It's just an example, okay? So please don't get religious on me. We don't have wine without crushing. We want, in, spiritually, we want new wine, right? Lord, pour out your new wine. We want new wine. Give us a new wineskin. And that's beautiful, but the process of grapes producing wine requires crushing. And then it requires being put into the new wineskin. And it requires the process of fermentation, which creates pressure. Who, who, who can raise their hand and say, I love pressure? Fermentation produces pressure, and the pressure stretches the wineskin, and stretching is tension. But the process of God is beautiful in that in the, in the pressure, in the stretching, in the crushing, is created something beautiful, and there's an increased capacity within the wineskin. These are just some natural examples what about diamonds? We all know about diamonds, and diamonds are created under intense amount of heat and pressure very far below the earth's surface, very deep in the earth. What about gold? We all want the pure 24-carat, pure, no-mixture gold. But the process by which gold is refined requires 1,400 degrees Celsius in a crucible to destroy and get rid of the mixture, the impurities. And there's a continual process. Just like spend 10 minutes on YouTube. Don't be addicted to your phone. <laughs> spend 10 minutes on YouTube and watch the process of gold. It is fascinating. It is beautiful. So why am I wearing these rags? Somebody, <laughs> somebody tell us what's the point. Why am I wearing these rags? Because these rags speak to process. We all want the end product. We all want the beautiful thing. We all want to be placed on top of the mountaintop without having to take the hike, without having to put our snow boots on, without getting bundled up and braving the intense cold and wind and precipitation. We all want arrival. We all want to just be there and we despise the crushing and the process and the sacrifice and the obedience that it takes to get there. I'm first in line. The reason I'm also wearing these is because the painting has been a crucible and a crushing in my own life. 
It's been a part of the God's process in my own life to break me. Man, we don't like to talk about this kind of stuff in church that God would break us. That doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very gentle. What about Hosea, that he would tear us and break us, that he would bind us up? If we're crooked, if we're incorrect, we talk about orthopedics. If a bone breaks and it starts to heal incorrectly, what do the doctors do? They have to break it again to reset it so that the person isn't maimed and lame for the rest of their lives. So there is a process in all of us, in all of our lives, and it is our lives, that is a crushing. But it's, it's not, and, and, and it's not God's mad, it's his love. It's actually his mercy. It's actually his kindness. It's actually his tenderness. And so in painting, in my process, in my story, man, Jesus, God has delivered me from so much in my life. Many of you have heard my story before, so I'm sorry if you sound like I'm a broken record please forgive me, but man, I was a rebellious, hateful, rageful, contentious, angry, addicted, abusive, immoral person. I don't know why this always comes up when my mom's here, but it does. You can ask her. She's... <laughs> you can ask her. I would, I would throw, go in fits of rage around the house and punch and kick holes in the wall like an idiot losing my mind. Please excuse my language. But God got a hold of my heart. He met me in a mess. And he saved me. And then I arrived. When I was saved, I gave my life to God and I was, I didn't have any more problems and I arrived into eternity and I don't have any more problems. No, the journey just began. The journey just started. We just had baptism a couple weeks ago and we talked about how this is not an arrival. This is a new beginning. And so I gave my life to the Lord. I was walking with him, massive transformation. The Lord saved my life instantaneously and freed me from all drug addiction in my life. All of it. I had to walk out the process with cigarettes. That was challenging. But instantane- I was an addict for years, and God instantaneously broke the addiction off of my life. Cold turkey. He did it. And then I backslid. I got arrested twice in 15 days. I dropped out of college. It's a, it's a long story how I backslid, but it just happened. I believe my transformation story was real. I believe I encountered the Lord. I believe I was saved. But, man, the devil is, is a liar. Come on, Marshall, where you at? The devil is a liar. The devil is a deceiver. And he will do everything he can to get us to turn around and turn our backs on God. So I, I backslid. I had this moment. Lord... Help me repent and get back on track. Fast forward, Kelsey and I get married. We're in college when we get married. I graduate college. I go into commercial real estate brokerage. I had a national publicly traded firm. All the bells and whistles sounds amazing and like you arrived. And I did arrive, right? No, I didn't. It was a crushing process in my life where God dealt with my entitlement that because I thought that I was a Christian, that I was going to get rich quick. That I could look like the world and have a Rolex and a $5,000 suit and a million dollar car. And guys, if you have a nice watch, if you wear a suit, like that's not the point. That's not the point at all. But God was dealing with my entitlement. He was dealing with my rebellion. He was dealing with my idolatry. And so I'm in commercial real estate brokerage for five years. The Lord seemingly finishes that process in my life in that season. I believe he did. I had like finally given up all the stuff and like, man, I'll just, Lord, whatever you want for me, I'll I'll be patient. Oh, wait, whatever provision you have for me, I trust your timing. I trust where you have me. And then all of a sudden he pulls me out of real estate. He pulls me out of real estate and takes me into full-time ministry. 
and now I have really, really arrived. Because I am a man of God and I'm anointed. And I got asked to come on staff and be paid to preach the word of God and disciple others. And I have reached the pinnacle of spirituality and ministry. That stuff makes me want to vomit. Ministry is one of the greatest crucibles of life. Ministry is one of the greatest crushings of life. Pops always says, and I always hold it dear to my heart, it's not about what you do in ministry. It's about what ministry does in you. The point is, is no matter where we are in our life, no matter what point in the process or the crushing, we are always, forever, continually being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and being made like him in his character and his nature, omnis off limits. And so I, I was in full-time ministry, and in my mind, you know, I was, you know, a performer. I, I started, you know, working in the ministry, and, you know, through ministry, through leading, through preaching, whatever, God used that to expose me even more. God used this microphone to expose how insecure I really was. God used this microphone to expose how much I really cared about what people thought of me, more so than what God thought. God used this microphone to show me that I was a parrot. P-A-R-R-O-T. Is that right, Mitchell? Where is he? Parrot, like a bird, not a carrot. <laughs> to reveal to me that I was a parrot, that I was just regurgitating head knowledge, that I was just trying to perform in the pulpit because I had arrived at the pinnacle of ministry. And God used it to crush me in a beautiful way. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying in a violent, like, angry way, in, in, in a way that was merciful, in a way that drew, because here's the deal. The crushing draws out the impurities. The process of refining draws out the impurities. So I was in ministry, and dude, I mean, the jealousy. The jealousy that I had towards people. The which is, you know, insecurity is a breeding ground for jealousy. The jealousy, the fear of man, the performance, the, the, the identity being wrapped up in, in my preaching of whatever. And God just used it to expose me. So I'm wearing these painting clothes because I was in ministry and I had to step away. I was in training for eldership then. People don't know that about my story. It was not public at the point at that time. And so I, was, I wasn't just, it, it wasn't just I was on staff and, you know, I was, you know, not that if you're on staff and that's not the point, okay? The point was is that, I had been invited to become an elder in training at that point. And to forfeit that for me was devastating. And so it was clear and obvious through my dysfunction and my performance and my insecurity and immaturity and petulance and pride and arrogance. I am telling you one of the biggest monsters that we have to slay in our lives is arrogance and pride. And I'm telling you right now, we are all way more proud than what we realize. And I'm, I'm, I am at the front of the line. I'm not, it's, I'm not preaching at, I'm preaching with, okay? And so I had to step away from full-time ministry. I had to step away from what I thought that I had arrived at. I had reached it. I had obtained it. I was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a leader in the church and Gosh, it makes me want to vomit. I hate even talking about it in a sarcastic way, but it's real. And that stuff's real in the body of Christ too. So I had to step away from being on staff. I had to forfeit and step away from eldership training. Jesus. And I had to go back to painting. Painting is what I did growing up. And I, I love painting now, I do. Like, the Lord speaks to me. I feel his presence and his pleasure when I paint. I do. Because, because of the process of my life. And so, 
I have to leave. It's like, what am I like? Like, and this is a part of the crushing that is so disorienting. It's like a whiplash effect. And 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 this was part of my story. So you're, the crushing for everybody might look different, but in my story, I had to I had to step away. I had to go back to painting. And I hated painting. Painting was what I did in college that kept me in college. I hated school, and so, but I hated painting more. And so whenever I went to work and paint throughout college, I was like, this is why I'm staying in school even though I hate school. See, and what that process taught me is that I just have a bad attitude about everything in my life, and I'm always grumbling and complaining about where I am wanting the next thing and the next step. And that's, that's the heart posture of the orphan. That's the heart posture of every Christian in the flesh. The grass is greener. When I get to, then I will. No, the grumbling and complaining is not circumstantial. It's a heart condition. And so I had to go back to painting. I had to go back to this excruciating, humiliating thing that I thought was below me, which was the point God was using it to humble me because I thought that there was work or a kind of work that was below me which is ridiculous. If we ever get to that point in our lives where we think of this is below me, that's the immediate moment you know you're walking in pride and arrogance. If I ever feel above scrubbing a toilet, if I ever feel above mopping a floor, arrogance. And so I went through this process. And thankfully through this process, it it was a hard time. It was a struggle. Thankfully, I have a faithful wife that without her, who knows how long it would have been. But thankfully, the Lord got a hold of my heart. He addressed, the, he addressed a lot of it. And listen, I still haven't arrived. Yes I'm, yes, I'm back in elder training along with Mitchell and Austin. Yes, I'm preaching again. Yes, I'm, ba- I'm not on staff. I'm not in full-time paid ministry. I own my own business. I'm back in commercial real estate. Yes, I'm, I'm back. It's, like, it's, it's a funny thing where the Lord al- allows you to retake a test that you failed in the past because it's not about that it didn't count. It's about that I didn't have the character formed into me that he wanted me to have to carry all that he had for me. Does that make sense? I just talk in circles. Amen. And, so, and so, so now, here I am. I've arrived again. No. Jesus. It's a process. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be able to share the word of God. I haven't even really gotten to my message, so please bear with me and be patient. But, you know, I am an example. If I can be one in all humility, that you are not too far gone. That you are not too far gone and that God has a good plan for your life. No matter the situation, whether it's self-inflicted, which a lot of my stuff is self-inflicted, my own stubbornness and arrogance. But some of it is not self-inflicted. It's victimization. We go through crushing because of what people did to us, not as a fault of our own actions, right? Yes, there's still heart postures we have to deal with. But the point is, is that regardless of the circumstances, we all have to go through the crushing. We all have to go through the process if we want to become the people of God that he wants us to be and to carry all that he has for us to carry. Arrival is an illusion. An arrival mentality is the antithesis of Christ-likeness. So just some quick Bible stories, and then we'll get into Deuteronomy 8. Quick Bible stories of time and process and crushing. Noah took, scholars say it took him up to 120 years to build the ark. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac from the time God promised. And even after Abraham received Isaac, what did God ask him to do? It says that he tested him in Romans 4 and asked him to put him on the altar and sacrifice his son alive. Jesus, that story wrecks me. Gosh. Joseph, 22 years it was, it was for Joseph from the pit that his brothers threw him in to the reunion of his brothers meeting them when he was at the pinnacle of his leadership in Egypt. Moses spent 40 years tending sheep, his father-in-law's sheep on the mountain, before God met him in the bush. See, a lot of times what happens is God has us doing the most mundane, what we think in our minds, horrible things, and that's exactly where he meets us. 
that's exactly where he has us. He's doing an ordinary, mundane, boring thing that in the context of Egypt, the Egyptians, it says in the Bible, saw shepherds as an abomination. And so Moses is being faithful in the desert. He's being faithful to the season God has called him in, and he meets God in a bush that's burning but not being consumed. What about Elisha? What was Elisha doing before he was called? He was plowing in his field. And Elijah came and he threw his mantle on him. And what did Elisha do? He burned it all and he followed God. What were the disciples doing when Jesus called them? They were fishing. What's the point? The point is, is that we have to be faithful in whatever season God has us in, no matter how mundane it might be to us. So Moses spent 40 years tending sheep. The sons of Israel spent 430 years, 430 years in Egypt before they were delivered. Jeremiah spent 23 years prophesying to Israel and they didn't listen. Israel spent 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And Jesus spent 30 years on earth. And our culture... In America, we're so dumb, please excuse me, to like ask the question, what was Jesus doing? See, we ask all the wrong questions. The process of crushing is about not what we're doing, it's about who we're becoming. So what was Jesus doing for 30 years? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 that he learned obedience through that which he suffered. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It says that he learned obedience through that which he suffered. How arrogant am I to think that I should or could learn obedience any other way than suffering? I don't even know what that means fully, but I just know that it's true. Who am I? I think that I should just be able to skate through life with no problems and just ease. Jesus Christ learned obedience through that which he suffered. It wrecks me every time I read it. So please turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. And I want to just look at five things that the crushing and the process produces. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The context of this passage is the Israelites are in the plains of Moab. Moses is getting ready to pass the reins to Joshua to enter into the promised land across the Jordan River. And it's the 40th year. It's like 40 years and 11 months that the Israelites had been in the wilderness in this time where, where, uh, Moses is, where, where Deuteronomy was written. Forty years. The journey was geographically 11 days, scholars say. 11 days journey from Egypt to Israel. And here they are 40 years later. Disobedience delays the process. I don't have that as a point in my notes, but it's, it's, that's the example. So in Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 8, Let's start in verse 1. What is the crushing and the process about? What does it produce in our lives? All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. Number one. The crushing in the process produces radical obedience. That's what God was after in the wilderness. He was after their obedience. He was after their yes. And it wasn't just a nonchalant yes. It was a radical yes that said, I'll do whatever it takes. And that's the yes that Jesus had when he went to the cross. It says that Jesus was given the name that is above every single name in Philippians chapter 2. Because why? What is the reason that Jesus has the name above every name? 
Because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most horrific, shameful way to die. Radical obedience. And listen, saints, like we, we're afraid of legalism, so we go into laziness. We're like afraid of like obedience. That sounds rigid. That sounds like rules and regulations. And you know what? There are rules and regulations. That's just called authority. That's just called structure from our heavenly father. Listen, we're charismatic here. We pray in tongues. We prophesy. Like, listen, like I'm, I'm all for it, all of it. But it's like obedience. And it's like, if you're like me, like you kind of feel like well, obedience. Like, man, that sounds harsh. I don't want to, What? And so we go from legalism to laziness, but the reality is God has called us to love. That's the middle. Because what does Jesus say in John chapter 14? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll listen to me. So obedience is actually a result of love and a proof of our love for God. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5. If we think that obedience sounds burdensome, we don't know the Bible. 1 John chapter 5 says his commandments are not burdensome. It's what it says, like literally, verbatim. If we hear obedience and we think burden, we don't know the Bible. If we don't live in obedience, it shows that we have a lack of love for God. And so part of the crushing and part of the process produces a radical obedience. A radical obedience that Jesus exampled for us that took him to the cross. A radical obedience that Moses spent up to 120 years building an ark for something that had never seen. A radical obedience that took Abraham out from his family of origin to go where? He didn't know. A radical obedience that when Abraham received his son, he put him on the altar ready to sacrifice him. Do I have that kind of obedience? I want to say yes. I want to say yes. And if I am in a rival, I say yes. But if I'm not in an arrival mentality, I say, God, produce this in me. See, here's the truth about the word of God. Here is the truth about the word of God. That every single portion and part of it applies to my life. And the, the moment that I think that it doesn't, I put myself above the word of God. I know that verse. I've read that verse. I've memorized that verse. I've meditated on that verse. I know that verse. I'm a peaceful, patient guy. So I like that verse, but I'm good. No. Every single verse of the Bible. And I know we're in the Old Testament today. The inspired word of God. Written by the Holy Spirit. The only text that the New Testament authors had when they penned the New Testament. Deuteronomy, the, 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 the book that Jesus quoted every single time he quoted scripture in Matthew chapter 4. Deuteronomy, the book that is, that is quoted 40 plus times in the New Testament, only exceeded by Psalms and Isaiah. Yes, we're in the Old Testament. In any moment, I'll say it again, that I think I'm above the word of God or that the scripture does not apply to me. I, I, I'm above, I can live my life above the word of God. No, what is Isaiah, what is it, 61, 66, whatever. He who trembles at God's word. To him I will look. He who trembles at God's word. How often do we read the word of God and we tremble and we shake because it's the word of God. It's the word of God that spoke everything we see into existence without nothing. It's the word of God that says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus, by the word of his power, sustains and propels the universe by. Literally, the entire universe is being held on and continuing by the word of Jesus' power. How much more will his word do to my heart? What will his word create in me? What will his word sustain in me? What will his word produce in me? We need the word of God. We need a Bible revival, as Paul says. We just made it through one verse. Verse number two. Radical obedience is number one. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Back to verse 2. No, and, and number two, the crushing and the process produces testimony. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. A part of the crushing and the process is testimony. That God wants us to have a testimony and a history with him. That we would all know him and encounter him for ourselves. That we could say, I really, 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 really have tasted and seen that he is good. And I really, 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 really believe that his loving kindness is better than life. But the problem is, is that there's a difference between, between time in God and time with God. I can confess Jesus is Lord. I can, I can do nothing after that and never encounter God. I can say I'm a Christian. I can live like I look like a Christian. And yet I don't really know him. There's a difference between time in God and time with God. And time with God in the secret place, in intimacy, in encountering him for ourselves, and getting to know his faithfulness and his loving kindness produces testimony. And that produces transformation. See, one of the biggest differences between the second generation Israelites that came out of Egypt, this would be the generation of Joshua that went into the promised land. One of the differences, one of the main differences is that they remembered. They built testimony. It says in Joshua and it says in the beginning of Judges that they knew the Lord and that they, 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 uh, they, they saw his works and they knew him and that they followed him for all the, their days. So there's a difference between being around the things of God and witnessing the things of God and getting the things of God inside of my heart and knowing them for myself. See, the process and the crushing is the same for all of us. It's for testimony. And that's the testimony that, G, that the, the, the father was trying to work into every single generation of the Israelites. The generation of the Israelites that fell in the wilderness that were not able to enter the promised land. They witnessed the plagues of Egypt. They witnessed the deliverance of God in Egypt. They witnessed the Red Sea parting in front of them. They witnessed the manna and the quail. They witnessed the water coming from the rock. And it says in Hebrews 3 that they had an evil and unbelieving heart. That, that convicts me. That convicts me. That wrecks my heart. Like at what point does my unbelief become evil? That's what the word of God says. This is Hebrews 3. Go read it. That can, I don't know about you, but that convicts me. But God was trying to bless them. God was trying to lead them into something. God was trying to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Testimony. Number three, the crushing and the process produces purity. Verse two, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not? I don't know about you, but it is a humbling thing when my heart is tested and pressures applied and the right temperatures applied, and I see what comes out. And I want to just read you a short list of the things that we see in the Israelites. Guys, and I know, again, like this is the Old Testament, brother. Let's get to the New Testament. Go, hey, go read Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. It says explicitly, do not follow their, their ways of disobedience, their example of disobedience. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things happen to them as examples for us. So what were some of the things that when the pressure was applied that God was drawing out of his heart, their hearts? Listen, he was not testing them to fail them. He was not testing them to humiliate but to humble. He was not testing them to shame them like Ben shared this morning. He wasn't testing them to shame them. He was testing them to purify them. 
He was testing them because when he led them out of Egypt, he said, I want you to be a people of my own possession. I want to dwell among you, the living God. I want my presence to be with you always. That's why. Because who can ascend the hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And so what is addressed in the wilderness that when they're tested? Idolatry. Moses is on the mountain. Moses is getting the instructions from God. He's there 40 days. The first thing God says that he wants to take an offering or a contribution from the people for is gold. If anybody's heart moves them, that they would give gold. For the, for the temple, for the tabernacle building, that's the first ingredient. That's the first thing that God says. Get gold from the people. So that his presence could be with them. That was the purpose, so that he would dwell with them. Moses is gone 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights. They witnessed everything I already talked about coming out of Egypt. Moses comes down the mountain or God speaks to him and says, hey, the people have turned. What's, what have they made? They've made a golden idol. Gold. See, idolatry wastes that which is intended to be poured on God. That which is intended to be given as a sacrifice that we would have Him. The crushing and the process reveals idolatry. Guys, I, the, my definition of idolatry is anything that my heart wants more than Him. Anything that I look forward to more than His presence. And it's football season, guys. I love watching football. Every year. What is the idolatry in our hearts? We have to allow God in his process, in the crushing, to draw out the things that I want more than him. And because here's the thing. The crushing and the process is more about having more of him and he being the prize than some other secondary thing. And if we're sitting here thinking about, oh, this is the process and the crushing that I have to go to to get more anointing to be a meta, better minister in God's house, or this is what I need to do to get wealth or be successful in life. Listen, if, if, if our priorities and our heart is straight, God will give those things. But the purity has to be there because God hates mixture. God hates mixture. Mixture leads to division, and division leads to destruction. Brother, where do you get that from? The Israelites go into the promised land. They're supposed to draw out and fight out the other nations that are there that God says to drive out in the land that God said he would give them. They get lazy. They feel like they've arrived. They feel like, hey, we're in the land. It is flowing with milk and honey. Let's relax. They didn't drive out the other nations, and that's mixture. They intermarry. They give themselves to other idols. And the mixture creates division. The kingdom of Israel splits in half. This, actually, this is like history. This is like the, the story of Israel. The nation of Israel splits in half between the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. That's division. The mixture they allowed created division. And then they were led into captivity for 70 years. That's destruction. Jesus said, a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. Jesus said what? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is the leaven of my heart? What is that thing that could produce something defiled in me? So God is after purity. God wants to address the idolatry. Guys, I know that this is a hard word. I know that it, it, it might not be pleasant and comfortable and comforting. God wants to address our trying of him. See, what happens when we get put in the process of crushing and the testing comes and the trying of our heart comes, what we want to do is start testing God. 
Are you really good? If you were good, you would not be doing this in my life. If you were good, I would be here in my life. If you were good, this would not have happened. So we turn our test into trying him when we need to turn it into trusting him. What God intends and wants to use to humble us, we have to be careful, does not harden us. That's exactly what happened to the first generation Israelites. Testing God, trying God, accusing God. You know what they say in Deuteronomy chapter 1? Listen, God is, God is about to bring them into the land. God is about to bring them into the land, and the 12 spies are sent out. And they said, we can't go, we can't do it. They have a, an unbelieving heart. But you know what they say to him, them? They say, you're leading us into this land to kill us. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says, you're doing this because you hate us. It's what it says. Let me find it. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. It's insanity. It's madness. We read this from, a, from our perspective and we're like, this is dumb. Why would he save you from Egypt? Because he hates you. But then we do the same things in our life when circumstances and the crushing gets real. God, do you hate me? Are you actually trying to kill me right now? Let's just go back to Egypt. I would rather be full and in slavery than hungry in your presence. I would rather go back to slavery than to fight for a land flowing with milk and honey. Grumbling and complaining. Sexual immorality, if you guys, I'm not going to get into that, but you need to go back and listen to Brother Austin's message a couple weeks ago on pursuing purity. It's fire. Listen, oh gosh, our culture is so jacked up and twisted, it's sick. Sexual immorality, unbelief, rebellion, jealousy. That's the third thing. The crushing in the process produces purity. God, Paul Johnson says, God wants a people without mixture so that God can give his presence without measure. Guys, we want the presence of God. That's all I want because I've tasted and seen that everything else sucks. And my life sucks without God. I've tried. Everything is horrible. Listen, I'm not talking about just seasons. Like, I can live in the spirit one minute and in the flesh the next minute. That's how easily we go in and out of this thing. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And he says, yes. And four verses later, he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's the fragility of humanity. Verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live on bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord your clothing did not wear out on you nor did your foot swell these 40 years thus you are to know in your heart that you that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son humility it is a hump like I said already it is a humbling thing when we're put under the pressure and the heat and we see what comes out of our flesh and our soul. Am I the only one in here that's done all of these things? Am I the only one in here that's like, man, I struggled in my life? Humility. So that you would know that man does not live on bread alone. Humility is dependence. Humility is desperation. Humility is looking to God for everything in my life as a source and nothing else. Do I feel like in my life that if I don't have God today, I'm going to die? That if I don't have him, I don't want to live anymore? Is that the kind of desperation that marks our life? That's the kind of desperation I want. So the crushing in the process produces humility. Verse 6. We're going to read a, a decent chunk here. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. There's obedience again. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land 
of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Abundance, wealth, riches. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Okay, verse 11, here's the warning. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The crushing and the process produces preparation and protection. God put them through this wilderness process and this crushing to purify them, to humble them, to learn to depend on them, and that, may, that I am your provision, I fed you with manna, that I am your protection, your foot did not swell for these 40 years. I helped you defeat all the other nations along the way that were bigger than you, and by the way, you're the smallest of all the nations, and that's not why I chose you. He says that in chapter 9. And I took you through all these things to prepare you for the blessing, for the abundance, for the extravagance that I have for you. It was for their good. It was for their protection that they would not be lifted up in pride saying, it's my hand that did this. It's my hand that gave me this wealth. See, the crushing and the, the, the process prepares us for success. You know, the Father wants you to be successful in your life. He doesn't want you to be successful based on your definition of success, what you think your success should look like. He wants you to be successful in His plan for your life, which we know is fixed. Destiny is predetermined in the kingdom of God. It says that He prepared good works for us beforehand that we would walk in them. And so if we walk with him, we'll walk in them. But if we don't walk with him, we don't walk in him, we'll miss it. And so the process prepares us for the success, and God wants us to be successful. I believe it with all my heart, but we have to have the purity. We have to have the humility of mind to handle it. I believe that success has probably ruined more people than failure. Look at King David. In the time that kings went out to war, that's when Bathsheba happened. Was he a king? Was David a king? Was he out at war? Did he then forget who he was and his identity? And all of what ensued was horrible. Absalom. He lost a son. What about King Solomon? Success ruining people. You know what the Bible says about Solomon? It says that he was the most wealthy. He was the smartest, most intelligent, wisest man on earth. And he was the most famous man on earth. And it wasn't enough for him. He had 1,000 women at his disposal between concubines and wives the success the it's just the bible guys he was the wealthiest man on earth he was the smartest man on earth he was the most famous human being on earth and even the sheer number of women he had proves that it was not enough for him see the truth is guys is that we all have a god-sized hole in our heart that nothing in this life will fix that nothing in this life will satisfy 
We can look, we can search for riches and for wealth and for a name and for fame and we'll still come to the same result that it's not enough, only He is enough. And that is what the crushing and the process is about. Is He enough for me or not? If I don't receive another thing in my life ever again, is His presence enough? Is His heart for me enough? That is what the Father is after in us. Would you all stand with me? So what is your crushing? What is your process? Where are you in your life and your heart? Are we even have, do we even have the self-awareness in our relationship with the Father of where am I in your process, God? What are you doing in my heart and in my life? Where are you taking me? What is your mission and your assignment for my life? What do I need to deal with to keep going forward? We all have to answer the question. Do we want to be a kingdom people? Listen, our Father's house will never be a nice little church. I mean that with all sincerity, with all humility. We are not after just a Sunday, a nice Sunday. We are after the presence of God. We're after confronting darkness in this perverse generation and age. We're after revival. We're after reformation. We're after the fire and the presence of God because nothing else satisfies. And so if we want that, where are we in our own heart and in our own life? I, I urge you, I ask you, to not just let this be another message, as however horrible it was. <laughs> is, it, is it supposed to be a joke, guys? <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't that horrible. No, but seriously, that this wouldn't just be another, hey, we checked the box for Sunday. Would we go and would we journal, God, what are you doing in my heart? So, Father, we love you. We worship you. God, we want you. We need you. We have to have you. You're the breath in our lungs. You're the reason for existence. You saw our unformed substance before we were, God. You formed us from the dust of the earth, and you breathed your breath of life into our lungs, God. You have ordained the steps of our life, God. Would you help us to submit to your loving kindness, God, and your process? Would you help us to trust that you are better, God? that your ways are higher, that your thoughts are higher. And even if I think that where I am in my life is stupid and sucks and the wrong path, God, that I would submit to you and confess my anger towards you, God, and my frustration. And would you set us right, Father? Father, we want to be a people of presence. We want to be a people of your power. Would you help us, God? Would you give us the grace? Would you give us the strength? In Jesus' name, amen.